Legacy on the Clock Tower. I'm your host, Andrew, and today I am joined by my wonderful guest, Wildstar. Didn't interrupt you this time. We're getting the hang of this. Uh, Tapir is once again going to miss this week. I, I think we'll do okay. I think we'll do okay. Tapir, we miss you, but I think we'll be all right. So as always, we're going to cover the most recent game of a 10-game campaign that is happening on the Pandemonium Institute's Twitch channel, the most recent game in Blood on the Clock Tower's Legacy campaign. This was game four, which is the first game of Act Two. The narrative changed quite significantly for this game, but we'll get into that in a little bit. As always, uh, we start with some of the game mechanics that were unique to this game. The game was played with the Duchess, which is a fabled character that exists in the base game. This game was played with the Duchess in a way that the Duchess could be exiled mid-game. It's not normally how the Duchess is played, but there was a reason for it mechanically in this game. This game had three houses. They were introduced as part of the setup. Each house had two players, and each house got a whisper channel that they controlled who could use. This didn't ever really affect play, so we probably won't cover it again, but essentially it just meant that they got to control who was able to talk in that whisper channel. I didn't even know that. I wasn't paying attention when that was said. Uh, so that, that means that there were six remaining players. These players were referred to as common folk throughout the game. They inadvertently or advertently, I don't know. Uh, but in any case, they created a fourth group. Each house was given an alternative win condition. All of the houses were given the same win condition. So to cover it really quickly, in order for you to win with this alternative win condition, you must be a good player, the Duchess must be exiled, one member of your house must be living, all minions must be dead, and the demon must be alive. If you accomplish all of those, the game would be over and you would win. Evil Team would also win in that event, which is... Important, it actually gave both teams an extra avenue to winning that didn't require the demon to go down to final two. So each day, all of the members of the houses got together. They selected one player. Could be someone in their group, could be someone out, but one person that's playing the game, that person must be alive. Uh, they were selected through a majority vote. Plurality vote, technically. I didn't actually know what that meant. Plurality means, you know, if everyone votes for themselves, but one person gets two votes, that person wins. That person gained the bureaucrat ability. Each day, the commoners, so the group of six people that weren't placed in houses, did the same thing. They chose someone that gained the thief ability. So those were the mechanics that were new for this game. I want to talk about a little bit of the balance of the houses. I'm going to preface all of this by saying, overall, I think that the house mechanic was extremely well balanced. Uh, so the alternative win conditions help the evil team because it essentially incentivizes good players to align themselves with the evil team. Assuming they choose to do that, the evil team gets a benefit there, which would be imbalanced. However, a lot of players that start as good know about this, so it's not necessarily a disadvantage to the good team, because the members who choose to still side with good could just choose to out to the rest of the group what's going on, and the fact that some people are basically flipping alignment here. I feel like that part of it is pretty well balanced. That houses have a mechanical advantage because they have an alternative way to win. Aside from the regular rules of Blood on the Clock Tower, they can choose to win through their alternative win condition, which is a mechanical advantage they're given at the beginning of the game. That being said, the common folk have a social advantage because they're in a group that is larger. So each of the houses could choose to to win with the evil team. That makes the evil team a little bit larger if they choose to do that. 
they're essentially working against each other as a part of that. Whereas the common folk don't necessarily know what they're up against. They know the houses have something special going on. And so they're sort of incentivized to band together. They may be on opposite alignments, but in their minds, they have a disadvantage. So they're socially choosing to band together. I think this dynamic is really interesting, giving some players a very clear mechanical advantage and some players a social advantage. And I think the way that plays out in the game is pretty interesting. Whether that was an advantage or not is hard to say, though, because ultimately we did kill at least the widow based off of information from Fran, who was part of the houses, part of the upper class, and we were refusing to talk to him. I don't remember why we killed Harmony, but I mean, the highlight of the game for me was I was part of the common folk being asked repeatedly so do you guys have like a secret mission against us because we absolutely didn't we just had a vendetta against the upper class the social advantage seemed to be stronger it seemed like some of the players with the mechanical advantage started to maybe get a little bit frustrated by the fact that they were up against a pretty strong social force they can't easily fight against that there's a whole group of people that just sort of want to exclude them for no reason that's of any control of their own so i think the way that it played out the social advantage ended up being a little bit stronger uh evil players communicated talked about it after the game if the houses had just communicated because the six of them they all had the same wing condition but they were told this separately within their houses if they had all communicated figured out oh we all have the same goal the demon was among them and evil straight up had majority if they decided to go for that because there were the six members of the houses and andrew the marionette two people to die that's all they need to do and exile the duchess which they just have the votes for there were members of the houses most notably kohav and fran of house silverstrike who were not forever but at least at the beginning of the game strongly opposed to exiling the duchess they wanted to gather info figure out what was going on i think evil's voting power was justified in that they would have had to figure this out and then the evil team would have had to go out on the on that limb and would have had to say okay these are the two people here are the minions just hope that the four good players in that group are like okay we'll win this way also i just had this thought mechanically at any point after the duchess was exiled the game was still happening every member of the houses knew that there was a minion alive yeah, so it's a question, do they want to out that? Because the second they out it, you know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. You'd be telling all of the common folk that there's... Right, but, like, within themselves, they can use yeah. that. You know, if you're not Final 3, <laughs> game's happening. Because I think rewatching it, Duke just assumed that they all had the same win condition. As the game was ending, Duke made a comment to KevKev that was explaining to KevKev what the win condition was. Duke was explaining it like, hey, KevKev, I know you have this thing that's the same as me. So I think Duke assumed that all of the houses had the same one. Fran and Kohav might not have. Uh, we don't know where Madeline sat on that, but uh, Duke was assuming that everybody had the same win condition. Yeah, it's hard to go out on that limb. I know KevKev said publicly that, oh, if you exile the Duchess, doors will open. Kohav, I talked to her and she told me it was house-specific, came back and asked Harmony, hey, is the doors opening specific to your house? And she was like, nope. It's like, huh, I don't think I want to exile the Duchess. 
I remember I'd been very cautious of how do I want to read this and I was mostly looking from a narrative perspective because this canic has major narrative implications too. And I figured, well, something will happen if we do it and if we don't, we have a duchess. I figured I should make this decision narratively and Alejo was like fully loyalist to Anolni and I was like, I'm not sure. At that point, I became sure. So overall, I thought that this mechanic was very well balanced. Perhaps there's some ways that this gets out of balance, but I think that it gets out of balance in a fair way because it's risky to try to exploit it. I think that having these two groups where one group has more information, but a challenge exploiting it, and then another group who's lacking that information but simply wants to band together because of the fact that they feel like they're at a disadvantage was so much fun to play. I definitely started the game feeling like, well, this sucks. Like, I don't get to play, like, the fun new mechanics because I'm not in a house. And after the game is over, I'm so glad I wasn't in a house. I think it was so much more fun to be a common folk. And I think that's great. <laughs> he made them all mad, so... And that was entirely social. There was no reason for them really to be mad. Like, they could have done exactly the same thing we were doing. They had all of the information. Right. It's very much a social thing that happened. And the fact that, you know, it's a social deduction game. Like, it was mind games. The two groups were playing with each other. And that's cool. It also, you know, it's a part of the way through the game. I traded with Kohav. I suggested, like, hey, I want to know information about the houses. I'll tell you game information. Because that was really all I could exchange. <laughs> In rewatching it, I realized that Kohav gave me not only game information, but also house information. But to me, that was an interesting... That's what we did. That's an interesting bartering system, too. Because it's like, hey, you, you know game rules that I don't know. I want to know those things. I'll now share a little bit more about my role because I want to get that. And it was a fun, it was a fun thing to play with. I really liked it. Both of us, I think, told Kohav we'd be willing to talk to her if she told us about the houses. She was like, sure, I want to talk to people. I think the information that she shared was really smart, too. Yeah. It was just cagey enough that it didn't point out an alternate win condition explicitly, but it did suggest that it's like, hey, I want to keep the Duchess around right now. I may want to get rid of the Duchess later, which covered all of her bases. It satisfied my desire to have information. Did she tell you that it was only for her house? Because that's what she told me. No, she told me that I loved her wording with this. I like reached out to her after because the wording on this was perfect. She said, I have a mechanical reason to trust Fran that is game related. And then she went on to talk about the houses. But what she was telling me is, hey, I'm Lycan and I chose Fran. And I didn't catch any of that. I thought it was trusting Fran must be a part of the houses. And so I walked away from that conversation thinking that they were all revolutionary pairs. They were, but they weren't. Like there was no, there was no game mechanic that said like, oh, they're all revolutionary pairs. Hohov told me there was a small benefit to exiling the Duchess, but it was small relative to the information benefit of having a Duchess. So she wanted to wait before going for it. So the thief and the bureaucrat were abilities that were present in this game. I think that they were really interesting to emphasize the class system. I like that they were included here. I think they spurred for, you know, interesting conversation. Yeah, for sure. A thief bureaucrat made thematic sense with our class system, and they were fun. I have no idea why people were put into the classes' houses that they were, but I have some guesses. Obviously, they worship the demon, and I think the demon-worshipping houses spawning out of 
that Act 1 finale, in which Evil won, makes sense. The evil players gained the power, and four of the five winning evil players of that game were upper class. Laurent was not, I don't know why. Harmony and Duke both gained the Bloodline ability, which we know is for an achievement. So after we were playing the game, we stuck around, and there was a small group of people chatting about the game. Tyler asked to pull Duke aside. Wildstar and I figured out Duke was probably being asked about bloodlining, and it made most sense that he was bloodlining the cult leader because of what had happened at the end of game three. So we cornered Duke, Duke confirmed. That will be said on the next stream. It'll happen at the beginning of it so that the general audience can see it happening. Yeah, so Harmony and Duke with the bloodline ability, that was gained from an achievement. So whatever that achievement was could have landed them in the upper class. The upper class is meant to be the influential founders of Ravenswood Bluff. Pav and Kevkev, back in the time of founding the Bluff, were given their own Whisper channels because they are influential. And I think that likely has some correlation. Brandon Kohav at least have won all three games. They were both upper class. Myself and Travis lost all three games. We were both lower class. So the only thing I don't like about that is it's not consistent. If you were to publish the rules for Blood on the Clock Tower Legacy, who gets in upper class and who gets in lower class for this campaign is not definitive. It's not a binary choice. It seems like it was a little bit of an interpretation. I like all of the guesses that you gave. The only thing that bugs me is just that it's it seems like those numbers could be fudged a little bit. In the spirit of an RPG, it definitely feels like a good explanation. And I do think Tyler's leaning much closer to an RPG than what is traditional done as a legacy game and so I like it I like your I like your uh, guesses there, there are probably other reasons involved but those are my guesses and I think that gives a theory for all six members of the upper class I think those numbers have to be fudged a little bit because you don't know what's going to happen and you have to come up with some form of distinguishing six people, uh, exactly half of the players. And I think there are things I'm missing too. We won't find out about it until Tyler tells us. There was a very clean break between acts, and one of the ways this was reflected was in the script itself. I remember saying last week that, wow, the script was completely overhauled. And now from that, every single character is different. Every one of them has changed. We do have some returns. The Oracle, Lycanthrope, and Moonchild from both of the first two games, and Balloonist from game one only, but nothing from game three. The Oracle makes a return because Harmony bloodlined it. So we have seen our first reappearance of a bloodline character. And the one other interesting thing that I saw in the script was in the lore, which we will talk about momentarily, it has been 50 years since the Act 1 finale. That was when we founded our town. At this point, we are generations later, and we have a grandmother in our town. I love that. That was intentional. That's so good. I really like it. I wish, though, that the grandmother was seeing a character based on, based on the narrative of it being 50 years. So the grandmother's actual grandchild was the sage which i can't think of any narrative significance to that it would have been interesting if the grandmother's grandchild was like the oracle which had been bloodlined if there was some narrative significance to the grandchild grandchild was mechanically insignificant since you know they were no dashi poisoned Right. I don't think there was a ton of thought put into it. But I wish that the token that was placed for the grandchild was narratively significant for the fact that it's been 50 years. Wildstar, let's talk about some lore. I have so many notes. Let's listen to what Tyler had to say. Happy 50th Founders Day, Ravenswood Bluff. It is on this occasion that we mark the founding of this glorious town 
and the circumstances under which it was born. The brave travelers who came here looking for the strong roots of their people, the Luf, Lufania, Lufania, may she rise again, were beset by trials on all sides, wolves that hunted as men, devious natives, cowards and skeptics from inside their own numbers, and yet they marched ever forward, called by the sea and the clock tower. The greatest trial was the longest day, a vision that would show them what was to come of those who turned away from the old ways. It was at this time that a man, nay, a prophet, Madima Spotis showed us all the truth path into the loving embrace of she who dwelled in deep. The teachings of she who dwelled in deep was different from the teaching of the priest in Anolni, but it was clear that the God brought to them by foreign missionaries didn't rule here. Once the settlers had ears to listen, she who dwelled in deep brought innumerable gifts and punished the wicked. And soon the camp became a fort, became a bustling town. It is well known that along the way, the more prominent founders organized themselves into houses out of love and devotion to each other and the values that made Ravenswood Bluff what it is today. How Silverstrike was gifted the first weapons to fend off the wolfmen and found untapped silver mines to make still more. And when those weapons weren't needed, the silver made the bluff a vital part of the larger kingdom as a part of the mint. Silverstrike were once warriors but now hold vaults of silver coinage, the beginnings of a great bank. There are other beings that would challenge she who dwells in deep, and our beloved chosen, the greatest being Vortox, the living storm. How Storm Warden has stood vigilant on two fronts, maintaining adherence to the precepts of she, and if necessary, eliminating Vortox should it appear. Their vigilance to the faith is vital. Vortox only seems to appear when the Luf have grown lax in their worship. House Peace Song, with their mix of generosity and pragmatism, have been the ambassadors of peace, keeping the young Ravenswood Bluff from being overrun. They made peace with the locals and the faithful, but most importantly, the angels of She Who Dwells in Deep. Peace Song has often played intermediary between the other houses and the common folk, as well as the Bluff and the Duchy of Anolni. Keep the peace, and one day you will win the war. Ravenswood Bluff has, on this 50th Founders Day, welcome the distinguished guest, the wizened Duchess of Anolni. The whispers are that after the secession wars back west, the duchy might want to take away the autonomy of the bluff, though the duke's vassals have said they have no desire to fix what isn't broken. The houses look to maintain the status quo that has been so successful, but the common folks are muttering in secret meeting houses that the lives of some of their own is the price being paid to maintain the bluff's wealth. There was so much less text than the last game, but I feel like it all had so many dramatic implications. We actually saw the first presence of the Duchy of Anolni. I have been previously leaning towards it being evil. I am now firmly on the side of it, Anolni, where we came from being good, uh, because exiling the Duchess, which was the force of Anolni that entered our town, benefits evil, and it benefits the upper class. It hurt us. It objectively hurt the commoners. I find it interesting that the houses are the ones who were very loyal followers of the goddess Lufania. Anolni looks at these people and goes, yeah, no, I don't, they're not getting along. Anolni sent us to find the birthplace of the Luf, which is where Lufania comes from, but the houses and the Duchy of Anolni are not getting along so well, which is interesting and narratively interesting. I also notice a brief mention of the Anolni succession wars. I think this was a very quick way of explaining how we went from a grand duke sent us on our quest in episode one 
to a duchess coming to our town. And then the most narratively interesting thing ever, uh, class warfare. Uh, the houses were introduced and their power came from their allegiance to the demon. And had we successfully exiled the duchess, Anoli would have lost power in Ravenswood Bluff. We would have separated from our colonizers. Some form of government would have had to have been established. It was mentioned that the houses, though we called them noble frequently, they were not. They were not actual nobility because they were just rich people who lived in this town but were still underneath this other government. If we'd gotten rid of that other government, we would have had to have one spring up. The question of whether it would have been an oligarchy or a monarchy is interesting to me because six of them all obviously would have wanted authority. However, our previous lore from the finale of Act 1 mentions the ancient tale of King Gideon, who was gifted power when Mezephiles told him a secret word and was the previous king of Ravenswood Bluff. It's possible something like that would have occurred again and we would have had one ruler from the houses, or they would have all ruled together. The houses also specifically have interesting information. Silverstrike was the house with the most attachment to Anolmi. It was really the only one that had significant benefit to remaining part of this duchy because they are a part of its mint. They create money for this much larger government and they still definitely had more to gain from being the actual rulers of the town where they live. I think they have the least to lose from the outcome that we had where Anolni remains part of our part of our society. Also, Silverstrike was said to be killing werewolves. That's how they got their start. The lycanthrope was Kohav, member of House Silverstrike. I just have a silly headcanon about that, because that should, in theory, be impossible because the houses are these families, these bloodlines, but the lycanthropes, the werewolves, are established to be natives of this land while the founders of the town are not. So theoretically, it should be impossible to have a werewolf in House Silverstrike. I have the headcanon that while they were off fighting werewolves, one of them got turned into a werewolf and they made their entire personality around hating werewolves to keep their secret. Alternatively, Fran, who is also in House Silverstrike, was the lycanthrope in game one. So they've just always been werewolves. I have another thought on Silverstrike. So Silverstrike is in charge of the mint. They have a lot of coins, they have a lot of money. The explanation for Peace Song references a line, the lives of the common folk are the price to maintain the bluff's wealth. This is meant to be a commentary that the common folk believe that they are a price to maintain the bluff's wealth. So. As, as we get more into the thought process here, it is possible that by killing off the common folk, it's generating wealth because it's essentially giving the houses more power. If one of the houses is headed by werewolves, then it's giving them more power by killing off the common folk. And so having a lichen in one of the houses could be what's giving the houses more power. I 100% believe that it is pure coincidence that the lycanthrope made it into House Silverstrike. It was mentioned that it was pure coincidence that the houses were all evolutionary pairs, quote unquote, or that the marionette was one of among the common folk while the rest of the evil team was not. I believe this was the same way, but that is my headcanon. It is possible, however, that the 
common folk were the price to pay to give the houses more power and potentially more wealth because there were just explicitly sacrifices of first thieves and later not bad people, just common folk who had less power to defend themselves to Lufania, who was our goddess and also a demon. Kind of not good. So the houses which really closely worshipped her and worked with her were sacrificing the common folk. So them being losing this power as Anolni swoops in is definitely beneficial to the common folk. They're gonna come to the rescue a little bit. Oh, Storm Warden. They worship Lufania, just like the other houses. Lufania is apparently not the Leviathan and is actually the Nodashi, which, sure. Because Tyler did mention after the game that we killed the goddess of this town. Killed a Nodashi, not a Leviathan. So, fine. I don't like the Leviathan very much, but I'll take that. Storm Warden is also mentioned to actively fight the Vortox. It is their job to keep the Vortox out of Ravenswood Bluff. So despite having this strong allegiance to a demon, they're still fighting the other one. Which means just because it's evil doesn't mean it's on the same side as the evils we fought previously or will fight in the future. Because worshipping Lufania, worshipping the Nodashi keeps the Vortox away. There's a line in it that the Vortox appears if the Luf grow lax in their worship. It could just be the larger narrative of things that we're doing, you know, potentially are keeping the Vortox at bay. I was trying to find meaning within the mechanics of this game. I was thinking that maybe the fact that we keep visiting the Duchess is what's going to keep the Vortox at bay. Because it is possible that the demon just changes in the middle of this. No, the Duchess was independent from our worship. That's the true. Duchess is of a Nolni, which not worship our god. Yep, as I thought about this more after the fact that that thought process didn't make any sense during the game, I was thinking that because the Duchess was a representation of founders, the civilization that we came from, that maybe there's some sort of worshipping from the old civilization, so therefore that's a representation of if you're visiting the Duchess, you're respecting the old civilization, and so therefore that's what's keeping the Vortex at bay. I, I mean, the houses named themselves on a list of, I believe, six names. So if Storm Warden had had never been chosen, there would have been nothing to keep the Vortox at bay, and I think that would make it more likely that it would appear on a future script. I like that thought process. I was assuming that Tyler had written out narrative for three houses and just filled in the gaps with whatever house names were picked. Do you think that if there's six houses that were named, that there were six impacts that could happen on the game and he just selected which ones the players pick yes 100 percent. silver strike was directly related to silver mines and werewolves and money storm warden was related to the storm of the vortex every time tyler listed choices only the ones that had previously been picked were removed from the options there was no chance that silver strike could have applied to anything but silver and money and werewolves so House Peace Song is the most interesting to me because, you know, their whole thing is we keep peace and we like people. They happen to both be evil, but I think narratively all the houses are evil and Peace Song is the most so. They're said to have created peace between the founders of this town and the natives of the area as well as this colony and our origins in Anolni. But 
The line given after that information is, keep the peace and one day you will win the war. So they are building this peaceful relation with people who they seem to intend to fight at some point. They don't seem to have such peaceful notions. They, it just seems to be this is what is advantageous to them right now. They are already in this game mechanically, they want to fight and only they want to pick the duchy out of their town. My thoughts on this were dependent on the fact that this description was going to be given to them, regardless of what name they picked. Now, granted, the description does talk a lot about peace, and so therefore, you're right, it wouldn't have made any sense for them to have um, gotten this description if they hadn't picked peace song. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play off of this and think, you know, maybe the evil team was assigned this description because of the fact that they're the evil team. So there's, there's something I want to call, call out about that, is that it was discussed that they bridge peace between the common folk and the houses. They keep the peace, and one day you will win the war. Uh, so I thought of this as potentially a line that tells the other houses that peace song is the key to them winning the war. So keep the peace, and one day you will win the war. Keep peace song around and you can win this war in essence saying hey the demon is right here you can win this if you keep peace song around i mean peace song could win i think it was meant for peace song to you know maintain good social relations the line doesn't make any sense if it was random fran and kohav could have picked the name peace song they would have gotten this description then this whole thing wouldn't have made sense in that way so yeah you're right I still believe it was a random deal. Even I believe that it was random that the demon was in a house rather than among the common folk. Um, there's a line in it that says they made peace with, and then later, angels of she who dwells in deep. So I picked out this line because I look for words that are familiar in the canon of Blood on the Clock Tower. Angel, of course, is a fabled character. I made note of this when Tyler was saying it the first time because there's always the chance that a fabled character enters play in the middle of a game. Introducing an angel wouldn't make any sense uh, in, in the context of the game because angel mechanically is designed for newer players, but it is a fabled character. If we have any subs, they get the angel. Um, it could have just been a bit of narrative and nothing mechanical. Mechanically, I think that would be perfectly fine. Though I also want to point out of she who dwells in the deep. In the last episode, we were talking about the cave of pandemonium. A demon living in a cave does make sense. We are worshiping a god, but that god is actually a demon. And so it could be that these angels are minions. I definitely think so. Because in the caves of pandemonium, there was this spirit of Mazephiles who granted power to King Gideon, as we talked about earlier. And I think spirits like Mazephiles are most likely what those angels are. Throughout the course of the game, there wasn't necessarily much more lore that was introduced as a part of the game. So there's not a lot to pick out there. But I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the larger story. How does this game fit into the larger 10-game structure that we're playing? Since we were just talking about the god we've been worshipping is actually a demon, I, I want to highlight something that Tyler mentioned to us off-stream. So he mentioned that everybody always assumes that the good team is the protagonist in the story. It supports it by suggesting that the god of Ravenswood Bluff, the god that everybody's believing in, is actually the demon. That's clear in what was talked about as part of this game. We sort of just highlighted that. Uh, so the god of Ravenswood Bluff is actually a demon. The good team is not necessarily the protagonist. 
The houses had an alternative win condition where they win by keeping the demon alive. And so I, I want to repeat the line, like, keep the peace and one day you'll win the war. I, again, was reading it as it was intentional. This line was associated with the demon, but perhaps it was random and I'm reading too far into that. Calling it a god is, I mean, sure, it's powerful. I don't think it's a good god, but it is, it's a demon and it has otherworldly powerful and that's enough for it to act as a god. Tyler's comment about the evil team being the protagonist, I think was based off of just the mechanics of Blood on the Clock Tower and he said protagonist, not hero. Mechanically, he was saying the evil team is the protagonist which makes sense because the demon is the main character of the game. In Clock Tower as a whole, I don't think anyone would argue that the demon is the bad guy uh, if you take out additional legacy story, but this mechanical argument still holds that they're the main character and that makes them the protagonist even if they are an evil one. And so I 100% think our demon god is evil. Tyler did describe this house system as explicitly a corrupt system. But yeah, Evil Team is the protagonist in Tyler's legacy story, and I think he's trying to build it that way. In defense of the idea that people typically approach Blood on the Clock Tower, at least I certainly approach it with the fact that the good team is, is the protagonist of the story, I would say that's because in all social deduction games, the goal of the game is largely to convince everybody that you were on the good team. If you're a good player, you need to convince everybody you're a good player. If you're an evil player, you need to convince everybody you're a good player. So everybody wants to be the good player. Uh, they want to be on the good team. And so therefore, I would say most people approach it with the good team being the protagonist of the story because that's, hmm. that's the hero. Like I said, I'm defining protagonist as main character because that's what it means, not the good guy. The good team is the you know, the heroes, but the most compelling character is the demon. That's the character you have the most focus on. So it's just an evil protagonist. Narratively in this game, the houses were supposed to be convincing the town to believe in the demon. I mean, that's, they're given a mechanic of an alternative win condition. Assuming they decide that they're going to win with that mechanic, they are, they are suggesting you should exile the Duchess. And if you are exiling the Duchess, you are revolting against the old guard, and buying into the new one, which is suggested in the intro. The houses are the upper class, and their goal is to keep their status quo. So they are suggesting, hey, we should ignore the duchess, exile them. And by doing that, they're helping the houses, and the houses' alternative win condition is keeping the demon alive. And so I think narratively, it's the houses are supposed to be convincing town to believe in the demon. Yeah, of course, because... The demon is their god. It's the source of their power. So either you remain with the duchess, you remain with Anolni, which doesn't worship your god, or you sever your ties and support your god, who is a demon, and protect them. We, I mean, we didn't exile the duchess, so we remain bound to these old laws, which do not give the houses power here. And our class system is, I think, in the process of imminent collapse. 
because they're going to lose their power when the duke takes autonomy and they're going to lose their power because the demon is dead the demon granting them their power has died for the most part this is just good for the common folk uh it was mentioned that they were just being sacrificed to the demon and the houses losing their authority to do that is probably good for us probably good for staying alive as the game ends, Tyler and Capelli go off to end the stream, and Tyler mentions a bit of information that we as players did not know. It's a tease for upcoming games. I want to play it. Let's talk about it. This will mean a very specific type of dune for the town of Ravenswood Bluff, because they just killed their goddess. Pretty, pretty bad move. A type of doom, you say, coming type to of... our town? Yep. Gotta be bad news, so... Oh, well... I can only imagine what that means. So, a type of doom is coming to Ravenswood Bluff uh, because the Nodashi died. Uh, imminent class structure collapse. I think the entire structure of the way our town has been governed is going to fall apart. And hopefully the fact that we didn't exile the Duchess means that Anolni can swoop in and save us. But perhaps in a new order, as common folk can have better success this time around. So the narrative going into this game had sped 50 years forward, which uh, demonstrates a clear line between the act breaks. So I wonder, I wonder if the three acts are going to be generational stories. I wonder if this means that the next two games we're going to play are in this time period that happens 50 years after you arrived at Ravenswood Bluff. And I wonder if there's potentially, you know, a significant time change going into games seven, eight, and nine. I, I was looking going into this game, I was looking for an explanation of what an act break meant. Yeah, and then in the previous games, there wasn't necessarily something that was a common thread tying them together. Traveling. Yeah, so there were travelers that were a part of it. And we were journeying on our way. But this game starts giving out a bureaucrat and a thief ability, which are both travelers. This act is political. That's what this act is about. Perhaps you're right. We look at the first three games as being about travelers. This one is going to be about a class structure. Even though they're using travelers in order to help tell the story, maybe you're right. Maybe they're not, they're not really used as travelers mechanically in the game. And so it's just using mechanics of the game out of context. What do you think that tells us about the next two games? What other, what other parts of Clock Tower would you pull if you were trying to tell a class story? Hmm. I mean, I think we'll do more shenanigans with whispers, which we did in the first act as well in the second game in a in an interesting way. This way, the way it was done this time was different. We are much less restricted now, which is nice. I assumed as much that we have a town, we have places to go. I don't know what mechanics we'll pull in. I think revolutionaries could very likely become relevant in the future. Perhaps that could be our significant finale thing in the same way the Doomsayer was in Act 1. Oh, I love that so much. I, you know, it's it's been discussed whether we would see another uh, another implementation of the revolutionary script that was very popular. It, done again on the Twitch stream, and it was suggested that it might not, although it does really fit 
the ending of Act 1 used a day to remember, which is a popular script that was created through a script competition for the Twitch channel. It does make sense that the revolutionary script would sort of be the thematic end to Act 2. That would be really fun. You know, we've been talking about putting a king in there. I think it makes sense that we might see a king as a part of this next, these next two games. As part of the heightened involvement of Anolni's royalty as well. You could see some of that royalty come to visit us and then suddenly the script makes a lot more sense with more of these characters, right? You could have something like a juggler, which might exist in a royal court. You could have a choir boy, might exist. Choir boy and king. You could have some of these roles that, that make sense to have in sort of like a royalty setting. Maybe the royalty comes to visit us after observing the, the Founder's Day. I think if we'd exiled the Duchess, we would have gotten one of king or noble, depending on whether we fell into that monarchy or oligarchy that I discussed earlier. But now that we're still part of this duchy, which was also referred to as a kingdom one time, we could very easily have both because this structure does have both. We're going to get a bishop. We're going to get a bishop as the duchy comes in and takes our autonomy away because we didn't exile the duchess. Yeah, bishop makes sense for the next game. I'm happy with this prediction. Especially, you know, we pulled in a fabled as kind of a traveler this week. I wonder if we could pull in traveler is kind of a fabled with a bishop if the theme of the first one was traveling and the second one is a class system what would you put after that Act three has to lead to our grand finale and uh, i maintain that at the end of the finale ravenswood bluff either lives or burns gloriously so in act one we had our big climactic ending and i think we likely will hear two you can't really do that in Act 3. I think Act 3 needs to be trying to bring it to this high tension point and leaving it there for that grand finale. And I'm not entirely sure what narrative you use to do that. Well, it's totally fair for us not to know yet. I think a lot of what's happened so far has been a surprise. I don't think we've predicted a lot, so it's going to continue to be fun. See yeah. You what's in store for us next. I think that just about covers it. I think I'm ready to sign off. Well, you'll see us again on Sunday playing in game two of act two, but game five in the overall campaign as we continue to learn the history of Ravenswood Bluff. That's going to be it for this week's episode of Legacy on the Clock Tower. Uh, thank you for joining me, Wildstar, and maybe we'll have to peer back next week. I hope so. I think we're going to maybe some more players rotate in as we keep going here, so stay tuned for that. See you guys later.